they fear, but rather in your hearts set apart Christ Jesus as Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, thank you so much for the promises from your word, the challenge to our hearts today as we've gathered that you are our firm foundation. We do not fear what they fear. We are called not to be afraid. Oh, how many times in the scriptures, Lord, do you call out to us to fear not because we are fearful people. We are by nature timid. We aren't bold. We're cautious. We hide. And oh, Lord, you've called us not to fear, but rather to set apart in our hearts Christ Jesus as Lord the God of all glory, the powerful one. So, Father, this morning, I pray that you would turn our attention toward that reality that we have confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is sufficient. The Word of God is our authority. The Word of God is sufficient for all things. And so, Father, I pray that that our hearts will be challenged today and encouraged and strengthened and that we will uh, boldly represent you to our world in our decisions, in, our li- in, in the way we live, in the way we talk, in the way we think, in the way we lead our lives, I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, the question this morning is this, is Christianity credible? And if so, how do you know? Turn in your Bibles this morning to 2 Peter, please. 2 Peter chapter 1. And we're looking at verses 12 through 21 today. If you are somewhere within the sound, or dist- sound of, of this sermon or this service today, and you have lived somewhere in the West, Western world in the 1900s and on into this pr- present time, I think most of us know that we have been living in really historic, rarefied air in terms of respect for Christianity and respect for the Word of God. The vast majority of history has been persecution of the church, persecution of Christians, rejection of the Word of God. And in many ways, most of us have spent, depending on our age, decades upon decades of rather... um, well, rather cooperative behavior from the world in terms of Christianity, in terms of the Word of God. Even those who don't believe in God's Word have tended to put up with Christianity, put up with God's Word, have a certain level of respect for the Word of God. But in the last 20 years or so, that has been vigorously changing. And I think what would be shocking to us if we did a little bit of a study into how things have started to unravel, it would be shocking to us to realize that the door of persecution of the church has opened a crack uh, from from, of all places, the church itself, over the past century. As modernist scholarship began its campaign of undermining the authority and accuracy of the Holy Scriptures. Today, it's becoming increasingly shocking to us, I think, I I trust, and what what we would have thought was unthinkable just a decade ago, 
that sectors of the evangelical family itself are relativizing the authority of God's word. This is not a new phenomenon and certainly not a new problem. In fact, that's what Peter was so concerned about as he was writing his second letter. Peter's great angst and concern was over the, uh, the issue of, of confidence in the Word of God, confidence in his teaching, confidence in what he had left behind as an apostle. And he talks about the fact that he's about to leave the tent of his body. He's convinced that his days are numbered, and, and they probably were. He may have lived another two years after writing this letter, and then died a horrible death executed because of his Christianity. And the section that we're going to study this morning is kind of a little bit of the last will and testament of the Apostle Peter, whereby he leaves behind his greatest heart concern that they wouldn't forget the things that he had taught them, that they wouldn't forget the things that Paul had taught them, that they wouldn't forget the things that the other apostles had taught them but that they would constantly and energetically bring to memory and remembrance the key realities of God's truth. So what's newer to us was certainly not new to the apostles. We're just getting a taste of it. We understand as we look at the text there, we're going to look at the text, that Satan came after the gospel as quickly and as vigorously as possible. Now, this letter is probably dated about 30 years after the time that Jesus walked on this earth. So it wasn't long after. And for us, there's an ever-present danger within the church of losing confidence in the sufficiency, the authority, the authenticity, the veracity, and the praxis of the Scriptures. And so we need to get and, and more than ever, we need to get very good as God's people at understanding the full implications of this little section of Scripture we're going to look at today. There, there's some key realities today that you've got to lock into your heart that you will be able to withstand the pressure that will come against and is coming against, but is increasingly coming against the truth of God's Word, confidence in what we believe, credibility of Christianity, so we'll shore up perhaps if there are some hairline fractures in your confidence. I hope there isn't, but there might be some hairline fractures in your confidence in God's Word. I want to start with a few more questions, then we're going to look at the, at the text. But, you know, what Peter is addressing here are questions like, is this Christian teaching just man-made myths? Or did these things recorded in Scripture really happen? Questions like, is Jesus really God? A question like, is the Bible really God's Word? These questions need to be settled in our heart. Like, as I ask these questions, was there any check in your heart to say, was there any hesitancy? Wait a minute, is Jesus really God? Was there any hesitancy in you? Is the Bible really God's 
authoritative word? Was there any check in your spirit at all? Well, I'm just, I'm not, am I sure? Am I confident? 100%? Is this Christian teaching just man-made myths? Or are these things that were recorded really, did they really happen? So Peter is addressing that. He's going to give us reasons to have courage and confidence all over again as we look at this. And this is critically important. And why is this important? Because in times of disappointment, in times of stress, in times of threat, what you really believe is all you might have. And so we better make certain that our confidence in what we believe is really true, is absolutely, absolutely true. Must be sure of what we really believe and that it's sufficient. Let me just throw out to you in in terms of of common issues of life, how important is it to you that you are told the truth? Isn't that pretty important? I mean, when you think about the discipline of medicine, is it important that your doctor tells you the truth? Or in the courts of law, is truth important in in justice? Is truth important in finances? Is truth important in, in, uh, in, from, from leadership? Is, is truth important from government? Is truth important in your relationships? Is truth important in your religion? I think all of us would say truth is, is a non-negotiable. Human, human life, human society, human reality moves forward on the basis of truth. If we are not given truth, we, are, we don't have the basis or foundation to make decisions, to make good decisions, to make safe decisions. Truth is of, of vital importance. So, how, so, so are you totally confident then that the Bible is truth? I mean, in terms of determining your religion, if we we can agree that truth is important in in, in law and truth is important in medicine and truth is important in government, truth is important in relationships, truth is important from our leaders, leaders, then then truth is critical in our religion as well. Peter is going to, to, to build a case for us this morning that we can have truth in God's word. If we're, if we're forming an idea of, of what religion will be, Peter is vying for Christianity on the basis of its truthfulness. That's what we want to look at today. And by the way, 59, I, I've been sharing with you some, some, some uh, studies that, that are current, that are this year, 2020, from the, the George Barnett Institute, that, those uh, particular people. And I, of course, I apologize, they're out of America, but we get a, a feel for the, the, the ethos of America here in Canada as well. But 59% of Americans do not believe, as of 2020, 59% of Americans do not believe the Bible is the authoritative Word of God, the authoritative and true Word of God, 59%, almost 60%. And by the way, 71% of Americans claim to be Christians. 
Okay, so you've got 71% of the people in America claim to be Christians, and of that 79, 71%, 59% or of the population do not believe that the Word of God is, uh, that the Bible is the authoritative and true Word of God. Uh, 58% uh, believe that there's no moral absolute truth. That's in the American Worldwide um, Inventory Study that was done, is, is done just this year. But here's what God claims from His Word in 1 Timothy 3.15. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Let that verse sink in just a little bit this morning. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, I would say, because we all, we all know after all these 2,000 years of, of the word church, I would say the real church, the real church, because there's lots of places, there's lots of organizations call themselves church. The real church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. How do we know whether a church is real or not? If it delivers the truth. If a church is committed to the truth of God's word, then it's a real church. Because the church is given the responsibility by the Lord to be the pillar and foundation of the truth to our world. How essential is the church? When we're talking about essential, it's the pillar and foundation of the truth. So, um, let's open up our Bibles, or they're already open, I guess. And let's look at um, the text to set the context. Obviously, Peter has been accused of teaching fiction. Okay? Peter has been accused of teaching fiction. The next couple of weeks, um, some of our other pastoral team will be teaching about false teaching. Hopefully, they won't be false teaching. They'll be teaching about false teaching. No, I know they will, they will not. They'll be teaching about false teaching. And this is where Peter is talking about he's been accused of delivering fiction. And you can imagine how distressed he is about that. An apostle of Jesus Christ accused of teaching fiction. Fables, myths, tales. So here's the text, verse 12. So I will always remind you of these things. And of course, he's talked about the gospel and about how, how, how we receive our salvation. Even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon Put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. So, by the way, Peter's just teaching a little bit here about the fact that we will leave these bodies someday. We will leave them behind. And then we will, for a time, be in the presence of the Lord. And then after that, we will be reunited with our bodies, our resurrected bodies, because our eternity is in bodies. But he makes the point here clear, I'll be leaving this tent soon. And so will all of us if we die before Jesus comes back again. 
And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Now, here's his point. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of, prof of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to, the, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by one's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the Word of God. I want to pull out two sections this morning and, and uh, look at them. And uh, the first, is, I'm, I'm going to sort of address them as questions to you this morning. And the first question is this. How do you respond to the accusation that Jesus is just a collection of cleverly invented stories? How do you respond to that? Surely that's been put to you before. Surely you've been in some discussion with somebody who said to you, this is just, this is just a bunch of myths. This is just, just a, a bunch of cleverly uh, choreographed stories drawn up by by." humans and, and, and recorded in a book. Well, how did Peter address that very same question? Because he'll teach us how we can address the question. That's what we're looking at today. What we're going to be looking at in this first section, verses 16 to 18, is apostolic credibility. Apostles' cred. That's what we're looking at. How did Peter respond? Now, by the way, the word that he's using here, stories... Muthos in, in the original is myths or legends or tales which were well known to those, those people as they are to us. What's the difference between myths, tales, and stories of the past versus the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's what Peter is addressing here because that's what he's been accused of. And he says, we did not follow that style of passing along stories. We're not tellers of tales. We're not creators of myths. We're not great storytellers who've gone throughout the country for the past 30 years telling about a story of the past. No, no, no. There's a huge difference between the genre of myths and tales and, and legends and the Bible. There's an entirely different reality, Peter says. And here is he's going to explain it. But, but he, he's making certain that the form of teaching that, that was brought to the people was embedded in historic reality. The difference between the Bible and myths and legends and stories and tales is history. History 
real historic names of real people, real places, geopolitical realities. The, the gospel message is embedded in the history of humanity. There's a huge distinction. You study myths or, or fables, they, they're lifted out. They, they don't have a time, a setting. They don't have people. They don't have history. This is a huge distinction. I mean, when you're giving an apologetic for the Bible, this is a biggie. That the Bible, in other words, God risked the credibility of his stories by embedding them in history that can be studied. He embedded his reality in geography and places and people, real people, that can be actually verified. I, I was, um, I, I'm part of this Facebook, Don, Don Faulkner is too, I'm part of this Facebook group of biblical archaeology, which I really like, and I advise you to go look it up. It's good. You should be part of it. And they're always telling you what's the latest things that have been unearthed by archaeologists in the Holy Land. And this week, uh, a really cool thing was unearthed uh, in the, around the Temple Mount area, or, or it was written up in uh, this past couple of weeks, in August 9th. It's been in the process of being unearthed. But the first temple site has been unearthed and has been discovered uh, to be in, in ruins just as it was described in the Scriptures, no doubt. Uh, in 2 Kings chapter 25, I'm going to read what the text says, and I'm going to tell you what they found. In 2 Kings 25, um, uh, verse 9, Nebuchadnezzar, this is the, the first temple was destroyed in 586 B, B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar. Entrenched in your Bible, all right? We're talking about 586 B.C. We're talking about 2,500 plus years ago. Truth, a event embedded in history, in a place, a, a description, just unearthed, okay? Here's the description. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. So what do you think they discovered when they unearthed the temple and wrote up in August 9, 2020, about what they have discovered? They discovered a temple severely burned. In fact, burned to, uh, what, they weren't so excited about the fact that it corroborated Scripture as I was. They were more excited about the fact that, that the burn, uh, the way the, the burning settled, I, I don't know anything about this, but the way the burning settled, it, it, it described what the magnetic polarity of the earth was in 586 B.C., if you can imagine. That's not what they were excited about. I wasn't excited about that, although I'm sure scientists are. I was excited about the fact that they discovered the first temple burned just as it was recorded, laying under the earth for 2,500 years, now discovered as it is written. This is the credibility of the Scriptures, beloved. This is why Peter was so distressed. You calling this myths and fables? Scripture's embedded in history. Theology is, is encased. By the way, they discovered that the, the temperature of this fire was up to 900, I don't know how they do this either, but 932 degrees Fahrenheit. This was severely burned. So Scripture is embedded in history. Theology is encased in actual events. 
And, and beloved, seriously, without the reality of what we're being taught here, our religion is of no use. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is just a metaphor, it's of no value to us. We are still dead in our sins. That's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. We are to be of all people most pitied. If the resurrection isn't a real event, you see? And so as we continue, as history and geography and geopolitical realities and the history of people continues to validate the scriptures, it encourages our heart. And Peter wants to encourage our hearts fundamentally in this letter with the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's what the core issue for him is, the coming of Christ. We'll look at that in a few minutes. And he's making the case, this is not fables, this is not myths, this is not tales, this is historic truth. And, and, and you can count on the fact that Jesus is going to come again and he's going to judge the living and the dead. You can count on that taking place and he's going to rescue his faithful and he's going to take us to be with him forever. Just as scripture has been fulfilled all along, scripture will be fulfilled. This is his urgent and passionate plea. So he's writing to the nearsighted. He's writing to the blind, those who intentionally give no regard to the coming king. He's already done that in the text before. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind. He's, he's writing to these people who are calling him a myth teller, a legend teller. And he's saying, you know, you, you intentionally bully and bruise and abuse the bride of Christ because you don't believe in the scriptures and you don't think Jesus, the, the righteous judge, is going to come back and call you to account. These are the people who... Who, who invent the idea of, of, of evolution as well. They're evolutionary biased people. And why do they do that? Why do they create an idea like the earth is billions and billions of years old and there's millions and millions of years in front of us? Because they don't want to commit to accountability to God. They don't want to believe in a Jesus, King of Kings, who's going to come back and call the living and the dead to account. Peter says, listen, you can call it myths, tales, and legends all you like, but I was there. That's what he says here. <laughs> but we, verse 16, were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The trans, he's talking about the transfiguration and Jesus' majesty. Next to a, a criminal signed confession in the judicial system, an eyewitness account is of critical value. And Peter is making the case here, you can call me a storyteller all you like. 30 years ago, I was there. This is, the, this is a man who died a horrible death because he would not recant from what he believed. And why wouldn't he recant from what he believed? Because he was there. He saw it with his own eyes. He and a number. He says we. You notice he says there, we were eyewitnesses. Not just me. We were eyewitnesses. The apostles were eyewitnesses. 500 people, it says in the, in the, in the book of, uh, uh, in the gospels, 500 people were eyewitnesses. 
to the, to the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ. We, we saw this. And I was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Something dramatic happened to Peter on that mountain that day. Remember he talked, we, we went through it in the Gospel of Mark. He said, you know, Lord, could, could we set up some booths and just stay here for good? Remember, something really dramatic happened. And by the way, Peter had already confessed before they had even gone to the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter had already confessed that Jesus is the Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, right there in Caesarea Philippi. He had already made that confession. And then he was taken to the Mount of Transfiguration. And his confession that he had made became of dramatically greater importance to him. Why? What happened from Caesarea Philippi to the Mount of Transfiguration? Something dramatic happened to him. And he says it right here. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In Caesarea Philippi, in when he made his great confession of Christ, he was not a witness of Christ's majesty. When he went to the Mount of Transfiguration, everything changed. He saw with his own eyes the glorious majesty of Jesus' divinity. He saw God. He witnessed Something spectacular there. It says the power. He says, I, we were eyewitnesses for we received, for he received honor and glory. But we, when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. By the way, in the, in the gram, grammatical construction, we call this a, a hendiades, which is a single idea connected by an and. That doesn't, isn't how English works, but it is how Greek works. And, and this um, Handiades literally means I had a front row seat to the powerful coming, that's what he's saying, of Jesus' majesty. I had a preview, this is what he's saying, I had a preview of Jesus' second coming. That's what he's saying. I saw his I saw the, the megaliotes of Jesus. I saw Jesus' glory uncloaked for Star Trek fans. You, he, he, uh, I saw intrinsically from the inside what had the, the human flesh had been hiding. So you, you could talk about your myths and your fables and your tales, but I'm telling you, I was there. I saw this. I, I, am, I am 100% convinced that I was eyewitness to the coming of Jesus Christ, the preview of the coming. And he's using the word here, perusia. 17 times that's used in the New Testament. It always means the coming of the Lord. He's using a particular word. I saw the powerful coming of Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, I know you know Jesus was already there. Please get your minds wrapped around this. You know, you know that Jesus is coming again. Peter got a preview of that. And it changed him. And more than that, he, he, so he sees the final day of the Lord actual God show, all right, before his very eyes. And he also, he says, for he received, in verse 17, honor and glory 
from, the, from God the Father. I saw his divine essence. I saw his face change. I saw with my own eyes that his face was shining like the sun. I, I saw with my own eyes that his clothes were dazzling white beyond anything that a Tide Pod with bleach could do. You look it up, it says that in the text. Yeah, I know you don't believe me, but if you look it up, it says that in the text. I saw that cloud, I, I, the, 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 the atmosphere was a mountain and a cloud and, 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 and everything that a theophany, how a theophany unfolds. I saw this with my own eyes. And it was stunning and it was life-changing. It, it, it shaped our direction. And, and I'm, I'm sure as Peter was writing this, he was, it's like as if I was back there 30 years ago. I, I still see it. It still burns in my mind what I saw with my own eyes. You can't convince me that I'm a storyteller or a myth teller or a legend teller. I know what I saw. And I'm using my remaining time. I mean, he has a couple of years left in his life and I'm using my remaining time investing my life in making certain that people know about Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel and reminding the churches that have already been planted, I'm reminding you, don't give up on believing this. I was there, I saw it. But not only was I an eyewitness, I was an ear witness, he says. We heard. I heard the voice. You think about that TV show, The Voice? That's nothing. There is the voice. And that's the voice from heaven. He said, I saw with my eyes, but I heard something with my ears too. I heard the voice of God the Father addressing this man we had been journeying with called Jesus. And I heard with my own ears. I had addressed him myself as, as surely you are the Christ the son of the living God. <laughs> but I heard with my ears, God the Father tell me what those words really meant. Oh, I thought I knew what Messiah meant. I thought I knew what son of God meant. I knew nothing until I heard that voice. When I heard that voice from heaven, I knew exactly who this was who was walking among us. When I heard God the Father refer to Psalm 2, whereby the Messiah and the Son are, the, 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 the Messiah is the Son of God. When I heard the, that God said, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased, when I heard him ex, 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 um, express the prophecy of Isaiah 42.1, in which all of us know that it's talking about the suffering servant, and, and when I came to understand that the living God, God the Father, was connecting the Messiah and the Son and the King together in one person and calling him my Son, the one who would come back again, who is to be Almighty God, I knew that the Father was declaring the Son God himself. That changed everything. That changed everything. This is the payload, beloved. And in that text, God said, this is my beloved son 
in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And Peter says, I have never stopped listening to him one day of my life ever since, and I never will. And I am urging you, Peter says, you beloved of the Lord, never ever give up on this truth and continue to listen to him. Because God the Father has declared God the Son, very God. I don't know about you, but I don't think you can get a better endorsement than that. <laughs> when people ask, is Jesus really God? The voice. The voice. So, Peter moves on here to verse 19 to 21, and he answers the, the second question, and we, we'll be able to take care of this rather quickly. How do you respond to accusations that the Bible is a collection of writings invented and interpreted by people? I hear that lots. I'm not sure about you, but I hear that all the time. Oh, the Bible's just a collection of writings by a group of people. Yeah, f yeah 40 different authors colluded over 1,500 years to make a, co a continuous storyline. You know, that in itself would be a miracle. You can't get people to collude on the same story for 10 years. So how did Peter, who, you know, how did Peter give apologetic for the scriptures? This is critical for us. Because how, do, how does the BFF of Jesus respond? By the way, that best friend for everything only Christians have best friends forever. You understand that? Only, we're the only ones who actually can say my BFF. Anybody else can't say that. That's a glorious truth, isn't it? Okay. Enthusiastic. <laughs> we have the full sail truth of the prophets. What do we mean by here? Peter says, we have the word of the prophets made more certain. Why? Peter says, because I saw it with my own eyes. I heard it with my own ears. And you would do well, he says here, and you would do well to pay attention to it. I commend, he says, I commend the Old Testament prophecies to all of you. I commend them to you. P Peter does that. I mean, what has already happened accurately gives great confidence in what is yet to happen. Now, depending on who you study, somewhere between 200 and 400 prophecies were de in detail fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There's at least one guy who says there's 351, and he's, he's sticking to it. 351 prophecies in the Old Testament in detail fulfilled in Jesus. Now, how many do you need? Ramon, how many do you need? Would 200 be enough? Would 50 be good? Would 20 be enough? I mean, how many do we need? How many prophecies do we need to be fulfilled in detail in Jesus before we believe in him? Before we believe in the credibility of the scriptures? Before we believe, oh, it's just chance? No, no, no. Into this absurd, illogical, bizarre, aimless, lost world of utter confusion that we live in, 
Peter says, a light is shining in a dark place. That's what the scriptures are. The scriptures are a light shining in the dark place. Until the day dawns, until the coming of the Lord, in other words, because the morning star is a reference to Christ, rises in your hearts, and, and, and all of your doubts are chased away forever, and it's settled forever. And he calls here basically prophets God's secretaries. The prophets were God's secretaries under the inspiration of God. Here's, in other words, here's how the Bible unfolded. Three, three quick points, and, and, and this is important for you in, in, in understanding how the scriptures came to be. This is key. Amid the onslaught of all the deniers and all the doubters out there, this is the truth of how the scriptures came to us. First of all, in the matter of interpretation, not one's own. Look at what he says here. Above all, verse 20. You must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by one's own interpretation. In other words, the doubters out there were saying, this stuff, these prophecies, you're just, you're just manipulating them and mangling them and forcing them and trying them to, to make them work out and all of that. And he, he, Peter's saying, no, no, listen. No prophecy. God never allowed any prophecy to come to anyone from their own interpretation. And we're going to get to how it, how it occurred, but I'm going to give you a head start on it. The Holy Spirit superintended interpretation, just as he does today. No, no interpretation of the Scripture, no teaching of the Scripture that's credible comes to you by a man's own interpretation, but rather by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why it's critical for you to make certain that the people that you get as teachers, the people that you listen to as teachers, are teaching to you from the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, not their own interpretation. That's how we get, that's how we stray away from the theological truth. That's why we have so many aberrant ideas that exist, because people take this and they make their own interpretation and foist it on people. Peter says anything that's credible didn't come from anybody's own interpretation, but rather from God, okay? So scripture, God never gave prophets the freedom to interpret. Secondly, in the matter of origin, notice what he says here, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. In the matter of origin, not in the will of man. In other words, God never gave prophets freedom to invent stories. People were never allowed to simply say, let me think. I've got to think up a really cool story about Jesus. I know. I'm going to have him heal somebody. No, these were never invented stories. God never gave anybody freedom to invent stories. It was entrusted to them. In fact, for the most part, um, the prophets wrote better than they understood. When, when Isaiah is writing about the... Uh, in, in Isaiah, for instance, in Isaiah 7:14, that uh, the the story of the virgin who will give birth and will call him uh, Emmanuel, he Isaiah was writing better than he knew. This was not something he invented in his own mind. This was something that God placed in his mind. So he says it. In fact, in, in the matter of recording, 
Men spoke from God. That's a critical phrase. Men spoke from God. In the matter of, so, so in other words, it was the writings of men, but from God. The writings of individual men, their personalities and their writing styles were, are, are all different, but it came from God. That's why you read through the scriptures, you realize this guy writes different than this guy. Men wrote, spoke from God. In other words, in the matter of recording, it wasn't dictation. It wasn't vague concepts. Here's the critical key word phrase. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Not dictation, not vague ideas, but rather carried along by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? The, word, the phrase carried along is, is the phrase that you would r- use to describe how a sail, sailboat moves. The sails come out, the wind blows, and the boat moves. Literally, the description here is how Scripture came is men of God put out their sails and the Spirit of God blew on them and moved men of God in the direction God wanted them to go. That's how the Scriptures are given to us. That's why Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture is God-breathed. Theonustus, God-breathed. We call that the inspiration of Scripture. That's exactly what Peter is confirming here. Scripture is inspired by the breath of God, the Spirit of God who breathes on the writers and they record. So that every word is the Word of God, but not dictation. So that's why we talk here in terms of our doctrine here at Calvary. We believe in the verbal, plenary, inspiration, inerrant inspiration of God's Word. Verbal meaning every words, plenary meaning every, every word breathed, inspired, and without error in its original manuscripts. And Peter confirms here where our doctrine comes from. The Word of God is a holy book presented to us and given to us through the power of God's Spirit. So there is a great need for confidence in God's truth today, delivered once again in crisis. Or sorry, the the truth that's delivered is once again in crisis, and we need to settle in our hearts our confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture, in its origin, that it is God-breathed without error. And I urge you, as Peter urged, false teacher, proof your own life and the life of your family. False teacher, proof your life and the life and the lives of your family members by having total confidence in God's Word as delivered from God himself. You can trust the Bible. The Bible is urgent and gives us an urgent call to spirit-led behavior. And the end is coming. Some calendar day, 
is going to be the day of the Lord. And Christ is going to come again and judge the living and the dead and reward his faithful ones forever. Those who hold on to their faith and their confidence once for all delivered to the saints to the end. Beloved, my prayer for you is you hold on, that you remember these things and that you never forget. Father, thank you so much for God's word. Oh Lord, to us it is life. To us it is truth. To us it, it leads our lives and delivers uh, us from, from wickedness and points to the pathway of, of right living. So Lord, thank you so much. We love you so much, Lord. We thank you for Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. We thank you for the fact that, that what Christ did was embedded in history and true and that he rose from the grave and that we will rise as well and that he is coming again. And Lord, I pray that our lives will be ready and prepared, that we will live holy lives waiting for the Lord, proclaiming the gospel, using these days, Lord, to live a life that's pleasing to you, that we might stand out as shining lights, as stars in, in the universe. For your great namesake, I pray. And pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.